Hello, this is Calmsword. I know it's been uh, it's been a while since uh, since you've probably heard an episode or at least a new episode, but uh, but I'm happy to say that we're back and just in time for September 2023. Um, there there's a lot of activity going on uh, on the Discord. The community has grown. We're uh, over 1,900 people now. I'm very happy to see that everybody is still enjoying themselves in this 10th edition. Um, we've got uh, got a lot of uh, events going on. We have a painting competition known as the Fist of Montka, uh, which uh, we are taking entries all the way up until September 30th. So if you've got a uh, picture of a, an assembled model um, and then show some progression, you will uh, you'll be able to be... Uh, considered for a very cool uh, first place trophy by the community and several uh, judges. Um, The trophy is a uh, genuine uh, fist of a mech uh, designed by Piper Makes and uh, it is a replica of the of the fist that she has on her models over on her store. The link is in the description below. Um, There have been a few uh, developments. The newscast is kicking off uh, a couple of community articles as well as reviews for the latest lore that we uh, have been getting out of Black Library. And I'm happy to say there's some pretty cool developments on that front. Uh, you can now support this podcast. Uh, I know there were a couple bumps uh, in the last few episodes and uh, the advertisement, uh, which this episode will have several. Um, yeah, uh, it's, we're, we're all getting new to it. We're getting new to, uh, Spotify's new system. So, uh, but, uh, but if you can, uh, we always appreciate some support. Uh, it allows us to continue doing these, uh, these episodes and, uh, continuing to explore, uh, everything, uh, Tau related. So, uh, really do appreciate it for those that can and those that can't, well, you can still join us on the discord uh, and uh, and be part of our community. Uh, always love to see new faces. Uh, today we will be going over uh, the XV8 and uh, further episodes for the rest of September. We'll have uh, unit entries and some bonus episodes to talk about uh, some more hypotheticals. Uh, yeah, enjoy. All right, everybody. So uh, for today... Uh, as part of an ongoing series uh, for September, um, I am going to try to be getting two to three episodes out a week, and we'll be focusing on the kind of staple units that show up um, on the tabletop, starting with this episode, where we will be going over a little bit of the history of the XV-8. So that is the crisis suit. The Crisis Suit is, has, has kind of just, I mean, it's taken kind of an interesting place in the hierarchy of uh, just the, the interest that people have. Uh, when, when the Tau first came out, it was the, it was the first kind of mecha-style uh, suit that, that uh, Games Workshop decided to design. And it, uh, it was wildly popular, uh, even more so, uh, made even more so by uh, the option of running Commander Farsight. Uh, which back in the day uh, was was limited um, in the units that they that he could take. Um, he could only take a one hammerhead broadside, or excuse me, one hammerhead tank. Uh, he could only uh, he could not take auxiliaries, 
And, uh, and so he could, you just had to basically really lean into the XV8s. And that popularity continued and then kind of changed where Forge World started designing uh, XV9s, which are one of my favorite uh, crisis suits or crisis style suits. And uh, th these would all fall under kind of the middle range uh, with the XV15, that's the original stealth suit, being, being on the small end. It, but but then it got overshadowed by the sudden uptick in design where you know we we started we started getting basically knight style walkers and obviously the taunar uh which uh is the one of the largest um forge world pieces that you can get for an alien faction and it's you know it's gorgeous it's got these you know three cannons on the back it's got guns all over it it's piloted by three i think they're i think you have to be a uh, chasse or above it's it's fantastic it's, it's just it's a beautiful model um right up there with the the manta if i ever one day um i will have a manta the uh, the xv8 kind of fell behind and is now just kind of regarded as it is still a must take i think by many armies but you know there are just flashier things out there obviously commander shadow sun has uh, her new suit, and and you know we're, we we've always hoped ever since Dawn of War that we would get more of those, such as uh, with uh, Commander Kais. So so today's episode, we we're gonna just delve a little bit into into the lore uh, of which there's the most history available out of all of the suits, and really talk about the cultural impact that the the Crisis suit kind of represents. Um, and we'll start right now. So back in the initial first sphere expansion, um, the 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 Tau really struggled uh, against the kind of the orc presence that was in the is in the region. Now, um, remember that the Tau cohabit uh, a stellar region of about three hundred light years uh, across, uh, like a like basically a stellar sphere or a globular cluster, um, and that is hemmed in by the Pertus Rift to the the let's call it the Rimward side. Uh, and then the vast Damocles Gulf, which is on the coreward side. Uh, to the, you know, if you're looking at the town map to the south, uh, it is assumed that the Damocles Gulf, Gulf kind of thins out in that area, but then it it starts turning into the realm of Ultramar. So the Tau have always been kind of hemmed in by these natural, um, these natural phenomenon. Uh, there, oh, I almost forgot. There's also the Solai Rift, which is not on the map, but is in the... Uh, which I guess it would be more on the Ultramar side, um, or where the, uh, just south of the Zone of Silence, which is that region of space that was eaten up by the uh, High Fleet Gorgon. So in, in, this, in this globular cluster, it used to be very densely packed with large amounts of orcs. And these orcs um, were predominantly space-bound, um, uh, living in asteroid, uh, basically asteroid fields, um, uh, lots of rocks, um, which is their their craft that's made from a, from a hollowed out uh, asteroid, um, and it is assumed, or or the hypothesis can be uh, maintained that this was part of the uh, multi century or even thousand year long uh, war of extermination that the orcs in initially enacted upon the Crute. So if you remember, the Crute used to have a kind of much larger interstellar empire that that might have actually left the eastern fringes, um, but but basically they they picked a fight with uh, one or two orc kingdoms and it just it it kind of 
as as is often the case, you defeat the orcs. Uh, if there are any survivors, they tell other orcs that there's a good fight to be had, and it attracts them to return to the region. And the larger the fight, the more orcs you get. So, so the Crute uh, the Crute Empire at around this point in time would have been in severe decline, and it's assumed that these remnant orc forces uh, would have been. Uh, just kind of drifting through the region, looking, you know, kind of looking for the next fight or interfighting amongst themselves. So the Tau go up against this right off of the bat, and the first sphere wars are are particularly difficult, uh, and and leads to the necessity and development of the first XV8 suits. Um, uh, this development will 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 then go on into the second sphere um, when when the when the Tau start of uh, start getting a little bit more of a handle hold of what like what they're fighting, but these initial suits uh, were were kind of fossil fuel, uh, uh, or, or I mean, you could call it like jet fuel uh, powered, um, with uh, with with later designs actually incorporating the much smaller plasmic uh, engines um, that we get uh, described in some of the in some of the lore. Now the Tau do utilize plasma more than anybody else. Uh, as you, uh, as some of you might know, the pulse weapons are kind of a dialed down version of plasma, much more compact, uh, much more stable platform for which then, uh, plasma, uh, pulses are emitted. And that's where they, where they get their name from. Um, now in, in, in certain, uh, certain books, uh, they are also described as having cold fusion, um, but uh, but we're not you know it's 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 one of those things that's kind of mildly inconsistent. But that generator on the back of the XV8 uh, that is assumed at this point to be uh, plasmic in nature. Um, but these crisis suits, these early crisis suits, the XV8, um, and and by the way, those that numerical system, while it has changed in recent years, um, indicate mass, uh, mass and roll. So an XV80. Eight, for example, would be mass eight, uh, and then a, and then a unit designation after that, or or a functioning designation after that. Um, and you can still find those uh, those charts, um, or if you or if you have some of the older uh, Forge World books like Taros, uh, the Taros campaign, you can check that out. Um, you know what? I'll I'll provide a link. Um, but but these these early conflicts really perfected the nature of war uh, for the Firecast. Um, but something to to pick up on, and something definitely to consider when you look at the and oh, by the way, the the first sphere uh, expansions is, are a couple thousand years ago. Um, the the scope of time starts getting a little bit more vague, but it's around you know we can we can basically ballpark it at around three thousand years ago. Um, and this uh, and this time period. Uh, the firecast was really kind of trying to figure out what it was that you know how is it going to conduct war against an alien species. Now the first war that the Tau fight are actually against the Nikasar. Uh, the Nikasar being uh, this ursine, uh, highly telekinetic, uh, very, very powerfully telekinetic species uh, that live in these things called uh, caravans. Uh, which are are a little bit like the Eldar. Um, are their smaller ships, which are called Dows, are all linked together uh, around kind of a hub. Um, they did not have faster than light travel, and so the Nikasar would really just uh, go into hibernate, uh, hibernation with um, smaller amounts of their crew active uh, com- uh, uh, and propelling the fleets 
uh, or, or the caravans with their abilities. Um, these these Nikasar uh, caravans, also called life fleets, by the way, uh, these uh, Nikasar can be found not just in the eastern fringe, but also all the way up in the Ghoul Stars. So it's actually unclear how how far uh, these migrations have existed and, and could have existed for thousands, um, if not, you know, I mean, in the scope of time, potentially millions of years. Um, it's it's unknown. But but the, the Nikasar don't have a home world. Uh, they're just based out of these uh, these free floating fleets um, that they that they then use to kind of explore uh, the galaxy. Um, and they're described as having just a natural and innate desire to see uh, see see the broader universe. Um, they come into contact with the Tau in these uh, the star system Tau. Um, and it again uh, described in the Battlefleet Gothic uh, uh, books as being, uh, it's it's unclear as to what started the conflict. Other, just basically, it was a mistake. Uh, there was some kind of, uh, it was an error, perhaps on both sides, perhaps on the Tau side. But this this first contact uh, war is very brief, um, and shortly thereafter, the Nikasar uh, kind of become uh, full member species, the, the the first member species of the Tau. Um, now, what happens after that is is that uh, uh, kind of a trade develops, which is uh, once the Tau uh, start developing their faster-than-light uh, kind of early warp drives, which, again, if you're a first-time listener or if you, just to brush up, uh, the Tau originally do have faster-than-light travel. Uh, it is uh, I- identical in description that what uh, for what the Leagues of Votan have. Um, it gets a little bit confusing, but... Uh, the Tau found a warp drive on one of uh, Tau, their homeworlds, uh, one of its moons, uh, and and backward engineer it. Uh, except because they don't have the navigator gene, uh, they can only skim off of the, let's call it the uh, interdimensional membrane that separates uh, the warp uh, from uh, from real space. And so these early Tau ships, basic, uh, it's a skip drive. They skip off of. Uh, off of the warp, um, with uh, with a, uh, it's it's much more stable in terms of travel uh, than than imperial warp drives, or I should say human warp drives, which are very volatile since they make full translations into the deep warp. If you can imagine um, the warp being the ocean and uh, and real space being the sky, right? Um, so so the Tau develop these skip kind of skipping drives. Uh, and in in conjunction with the Nikasar, they agree that the Tau will will uh, basically uh, uh, attach these Daos uh, to gravitic hooks, which are these imagine kind of like a an, a, an array that uh, accumulates uh, a gravitational point around it and allows things to uh, basically enter into a semi kind of orbit uh, very close to the hull of the ship. Um, and then skip to other star systems, um, and then the Nikasar are kind of uh, allowed to explore these new star systems, uh, which which fulfills that innate desire of discovery. Um, so this is this is that first relationship that the Tau create uh, with an alien species, and the Ethereals, of course, uh, uh, pontificate and and explain that of course this uh, you know the the communality that we can achieve with another alien species. Uh, with our, uh, our our 
our belief system of the greater good of, you know, it, it should be expanded to the rest of the universe. Um, so kind of proves a point. But the reason I bring it up is, is that the fire cast is not used at all or is not described at all in this conflict uh, because it is space-based alone. Um, instead, the fire cast is busy, and I've brought this up before, uh, the fire cast is regulated to exterminating the last of the, uh, I'm going to call them super predators, um, that are described um, uh, in the seventh edition codex uh, that uh, still roam around uh, Tau itself, uh, presumably hunting Tau. Um, I've always been fascinated by this because it implies, uh, I mean, the best way I can kind of imagine it is, is that imagine if uh, Earth still had saber-toothed tigers hunting human beings in like the 1960s when our space program kind of first got off of the ground. Um, that is what the, the fire cast has been dealing with. But, you know, that's, it's, uh, once you become advanced enough, a, a natural predator is no longer that frightening. Uh, even if you're, uh, you know, a near atomic age, uh, civilization, um, f fighting with, with, with natural predators. Uh, impressive though that is, it's not, it's not war, right? It's, uh, it's hunting. But I also uh, kind of attribute this lore fact to why the Tao uh, approach conflict and, and modern warfare uh, as kind of a hunting, uh, an analogy to hunting. So the patient hunter, for example, which is the, uh, the core of, of Tao military tactics, uh, with Montka being, being the more, uh, let's call it the more modern or the more recent uh, addition to um, to military tactics, um, so so as they uh, expand outward, they eventually discover the star system Taun, uh, or or uh, basically in in Taosia, second Tau or new Tau. Um, this is the closest sept uh, and the first sept that that starts to grow, um, and it is uh, it is kind of the operate or, or the base of operations for orc pirates. Um, the Tao engage with them, and now for the first time, the fire cast gets to kind of like figure itself out. Um, initially, it does this pretty well, but it's really the invention, the, the creation of the XV-8 that give them their incredible edge over these, um, over these uh, let's call it the uh, small population of orcs that's in the region. As the discovery of that infestation of the region uh, becomes more apparent, the XV-8 is given more weapons and, and, and really uh, becomes the weapon platform that has endured until today. Now, we're not sure about what kinds of weapons it used. It's assumed that the Tau went through a technological process of originally being, uh, let's call it more like bullet analogy uh, weaponry. Um, something closer to like an auto gun, for example, the, the Imperial version of that. Um, but, but clearly after, uh, toward, toward the struggles and wars of the first, first sphere, uh, they develop pulse technology, which, which, you know, again, has endured until today. Um, it's the second sphere that really the XV-8 becomes the cultural icon of the fire cast. And why it's so interesting and so important is that one, the second sphere is about uh, between uh, you know, 18 and two, 1800 and, and 2000 years. And it is the, it is the primary, uh, it, let, let's call it like the golden age of uh, Tao military conquests. Um, obviously there is a diplomacy aspect uh, to it. A lot of their longstanding allies remain, 
but it's only in the second sphere that they run they, they start running into enemies that they cannot negotiate with or that reject negotiation. Um, the two uh, most, well, four, um, but the two primary uh, uh, antagonists of the region, basically the species that are unwilling to work with the Tao and want to maintain uh, their borders and their their culture, which is which is extremely volatile to uh, the peace process, is the Hrud. Um, now the Hrud are are best described as kind of like uh, the predator from the Aliens and Predators franchise. The predator meets a kind of like Jawa uh, or or sand person kind of description. Um, originally, you know, they were, uh, they were kind of space skaven, but that, that description has kind of fallen by the wayside. The Hred, um, are a galaxy spanning, uh, species and their migrations are extremely, uh, threatening to all other forms of life because the Hred, either by their technology, uh, which is also, uh, described as plasma based or warp plasma based, uh, their, uh, their proximity actually ages people. Um, they they have some kind of chronospheric effect on the area around them. Um, so this species is migrating through the region. Um, they have it, it, no one has ever, uh, at least to my, uh, I have never read any entry that describes the Hrud as ever being uh, successfully communicated with. Um, but they are as old as the Eldar. They go they go all the way back and probably worshipped the same either the same gods or, uh, or were associated with the old ones. So, so they're, an ancient, they're an ancient species, truly ancient. Uh, and then there are the, um, the Arakan. And the Arakan, uh, which is a really interesting uh, conflict, and I, I, I would recommend uh, anybody who's uh, interested in, in uh, Farsight's early career to take a look at that. Um, but they are in the Western Vale region. And uh, the best description, honestly, they sound a lot, a lot like the mega arachnids of 30K. And uh, I've often hypothesized that there could be some kind of correlation or relation, uh, potentially, potentially it's a, a branch of that species. Uh, but the Arakan are a kind of an, an insectoid uh, spider, spider-like species uh, that uses other life forms uh, to birth their young. So they a little bit like alien, they grab you, they inject you with their young, and then you'll have these tiny spiders kind of explode outside of you. Um, not not cool. Um, and, and so the Tau kind of bump up against these two threats. Now, threats that are lesser described are the, um, the first encounters with the hyperviolent Bargasi, uh, who are a threat uh, that's more from the uh, northern eastern fringe as well as described as being in the ghoul stars. Um, they are, uh, I mean, they're the hyperviolent Bargasi. They're uh, extremely uh, volatile. They're, they're, uh, they, they also kind of operate in kind of a mag- migratory description. Um, there are entire space marine chapters that have been dedicated to try to contain them. Uh, obviously unsuccessfully, but it is uh, but it is uh, interesting to note that the breacher style fire warrior uh, was originally um, kind of invented to combat uh, to combat the Bargasi, um, and then later, of course, Imperial uh, army formations. Uh, the hyperviolent Bargasi and the uh, loathsome Reek uh, R E E K 
um, Anva actually becomes very famous in uh, the destruction of their presence in the region. Um, but, uh, but the Reek uh, are also known to be migratory uh, and, uh, and they are aggressively colonial. So, um, uh, yeah, again, very interesting. We only get a very little amount of lore from them from the Tau Codex as well as the Star of Damocles trilogy. Um, but, uh, you know, oh, <laughs> Games Workshop's really good at, at being titillating uh, with the, the, uh, the minor descriptions of, of other alien races existing in the galaxy. But against all four of these threats, the XV-8 uh, comes into its own. Uh, and becomes that cultural icon that I was talking about. The XV-8, uh, being a weapons platform, uh, also is then given the the best uh, uh, warriors, um, as well as the best weapons that the that the Earthcast uh, can produce. Um, and and that combination actually ends up uh, heavily influencing the rank progression of the Firecast. So to begin with. Um, as most people know, you you know if you are uh, a Tau, uh, you start off in these Kreshlings, and these are these uh, community school uh, habitats, uh, which you still have contact with your parents, uh, but otherwise you are raised by uh, your teachers. Um, and these uh, these early Kreshlings, uh, they are called Sal. Uh, so if you're a fire warrior, you would be called a Shasal. Uh, which basically makes you a child. Now, it's again, there have been a couple different descriptions, but uh, it has been described that Tau uh, age faster uh, than humans do. And so you basically enter into your teenage years at about eight. However, there are other descriptions that have a more traditional uh, aging process where you actually are 18. Um, but uh, lore enthusiasts like myself have done the math, and if you only had about 50 years, 50 to, let's say, a maximum of 60 years to live, uh, 18 would mean that you, I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't have much of a life if it took that long to age up. So again, it's one of those minor lore discrepancies. I have a tendency of thinking that Tau age faster. Um, I think it would make more sense uh, in, line with, uh, in line with their other lore. Uh, and that effectively that you you enter into kind of semi-adulthood, let's say it's six, you know, the comparison to human beings would be 16 to 18 by the time you're eight, uh, eight years old uh, or eight cycles old uh, for, for the Tau. Anyway, so you, you go through this Sol period and once you, you, you have kind of, you enter into the specialization of your, of your caste. Uh, and you do that by going into, for the fire cast, which we know the most about, you enter into these war academies. Uh, and there's some really awesome early, uh, early codex descriptions of what these battle domes are like, but they are academies dedicated to the study of war. Um, specifically, they are uh, often associated with uh, more illustrious commanders. So uh, Commander uh, Farsight, um, Oshova, uh, had his way of the short blade that was actually taught in the Viorla academies for uh, several uh, centuries um, until until Shadow Sun actually removed his association to the battle domes of Viorla. Uh, very famously, he, she she blows up one of his uh, statues and condemns him as a as a as a traitor to the greater good. So. Um, so each of these battle domes spread out of over, you know, every sept has their own battle domes and they have their own way of war. 
but you you learn in these uh, periods uh, uh, toward the the older state of being a Saul, and then and then it, you can spend four years as uh, as a uh, Shasla or La being the 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 kind of uh, first step into the rest of your career. So you don't no Tao stays a Saul, but you you might stay uh, stay a La. Um, now, as a law, you might continue your studies at an academy, or you might go directly uh, into active service. Um, but during that time period uh, at an academy, you do learn how to uh, be a line warrior or a breacher, um, the, the best students becoming pathfinders. Um, and it's only after you move through this law period, which is four years, um, you have the opportunity of becoming a Shasui, right? And so that's, and Shasui is the first like specialist position, right? Um, before that though, you are allowed to learn how to pilot XV suits. Now it's assumed that this is all, uh, it's, it's expressly stated that a Shasui uh, is now allowed to pilot a crisis suit, but there have been some descriptions, uh, especially in the, um, the Montka book, uh, or Kayun as well, uh, that that has a fire warrior uh, knowing how to pilot uh, an XV suit from uh, from uh, they, uh, there's a combination of learning programs. There's either uh, simulation, which the Tau have some of the most advanced simulated uh, programs out of all of the species. Um, in fact, uh, if you read the if you read the Farsight Codex. Uh, you can see that not even Oshova could know the difference when he was in one of these simulated, uh, uh, let's call it experiences, um, and when he was uh, conscious and 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 awake. Right. Um, so these you know these VR programs are also regarded culturally as the equivalent of real real world experience, which I also find really interesting, um, and uh, and and makes for well, we'll make for another episode. But the Shasla um, are trained uh, in these programs, um, but, are, but, but, but only as a Shaswi are, are allowed to be actively inside of one XV-8. Now for Pathfinders, it's a little bit different. Pathfinders are typically uh, allowed to pilot the, the stealth suit models, um, which, are the, which, which are about half, you know, half the size of an XV-8 um, and are are, are much more dangerous uh, to operate because they're, uh, you know, they're operating behind enemy lines, etc., and they don't have the weapons platform status of an XV-8. Um, but for the rest of the fire cast, the XV-8 is um, the XV-8 is kind of the pinnacle of of and, and the exemplification of the fire cast uh, and service. Um, you are the you know you are the tip of the spear uh and it is very you know as we describe space marines um the crisis suit basically turns a fire warrior uh into uh the cultural equivalent of a space marine on uh, not not one of the very backward imperial worlds but let's say one of the hive worlds where they have more contact with space marines and they're not you know they're not uh so mythical right um now xv8 pil uh, pilots uh, are uh, are then removed from the uh, the kind of the the, the foot soldier class, um, and uh, and and are then inducted into different types of squads. So during the second sphere, all of this kind of becomes 
this becomes the culture of the fire caste, right? You serve, in, uh, you serve as a foot soldier, and then if you graduate, um, you can potentially pilot one of these suits. Now, what one of the things, so, so maybe it would be good to maybe segue into just talking a little bit about the technology inside of an XV-8. So we all know about the weapons platform aspect. You know, you have missile pods, plasma rifles, uh, you've got the you've you've got the fusion blaster, and all of these patterns used to have uh, used to have different uh, seps uh, and and schools of thought associated with them. So uh, one of my favorites was the Sunforge pattern, and that incorporated two fusion blasters and a shield generator. And the lore attached to that, which you can still get, um, it's in one of the earlier uh, White Dwarves, uh, describes that this is, you know, the this is one of the most deadly patterns because one, obviously, it's got two fusion blasters, but they go deep into uh, enemy-controlled territory and hunt for vehicles uh, or target or, or, or major target uh, armored targets of opportunity, and I, I just I. I liked the association it had with the seps where where the fire warriors almost exemplify this way of war. So so it wasn't it wasn't so much about, you know, nowadays we ma- we basically magnetize our crisis suits, right? And we just swap them out. Well, except for the c- cyclic ion blaster is obviously the only thing that the tactical tabletop playing part of our hobby will say to take and I I know why and that's great, but back in the day, all of these different patterns of uh, and weapon combinations were uh, were kind of associated much more with the cultural applications. Uh, you know, the Viorlins, for example, were very, very into uh, into uh, basically kind of a frontline, uh, in-your-face uh, patterns like a flamer and plasma rifle. You know, um, while uh, the Sakia. Uh, were more into kind of more keeping keeping things at distance at, and more of a support role, uh, while the while the uh, the Tau uh, from Ta uh, were more likely to be kind of in the middle between those two, and that and that really incorporated the psychology of each of the sets, uh, and I really loved that, um, and I think that we kind of get it now when when we you know you can build different sept armies. Um, but the the way that a sept uses its XV8s is tied intrinsically, I think, to the mentality of a sept, um, and I think that I think that we can we can kind of bring that back on the tabletop one day when the cyclic ion blaster isn't just the coolest thing uh, that you can bring. Um, anyway, so so going back into this technology within the XV, so so first of all. Uh, the, the XV suit itself is made from uh, Fiotok. Uh, Fiotok is a nanocrystalline, uh, uh, kind of ablative uh, sheets, uh, very similar to uh, uh, the ceramic style um, armor that the Space Marines wear, so ceramite. Um, it is, uh, but with the added aspect to it that it actually has been described as being able to kind of recover. So uh, if you shot a uh, XV8, for example, um, perhaps, and and the time frame has never been uh, fully described, but hours to days, I would imagine, the nanocrystalline aspect of the armor can reformat it itself. So it's kind of like regrowing, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Um, 
Now, that, those nanocrystalline sheets are, are similar to the, uh, the armor that's worn by fire warriors. It's just much thicker. And it can be further reinforced by iridium. And iridium used to be very difficult to get a hold of, but in subsequent years uh, during the fifth sphere, uh, it is, uh, it's, it's much more commonplace. But iridium uh, is difficult to, uh, to create, um, making it uh, more exclusive. Um, back in the day, only a commander could get iridium suits, and now I think every, every crisis suit uh, squad can have one that has it. Um, during the Taros campaign, uh, there was uh, Chasso Ramir who had uh, more access to, um, that had more access to the Earthcast, could have more of his uh, warriors wear more of the uh, exotic suits that exist. Um, but, but obviously he was the, the outlier. Um, so within the suit itself, though, you have the pilot's pod. And now um, that pod is entirely within the chest piece of the XV-8. Um, and uh, there, uh, there's been various descriptions of it uh, from like, there's a, there, it's, a, it's described as a cocoon, um, uh, but the control panel before it is a little bit like if you've ever seen pictures of the ghost keel cockpit um, where there are a lot of different surface uh, surfaces that um, that effectively emit holographic uh, controls. Now, the way that the crisis pilot uh, manipulates those controls is a combination. Uh, it's a three-way combination. The first is uh, let's let's just call it more traditional, um, where there are actual handhold. Uh, places uh, where your your fingers and, and hands can operate uh, the controls uh, manually. Then there is optical, um, where a lot of Tau technology tracks the eye movements uh, of a pilot. Uh, you can actually uh, see this showcased in the Exodite, uh, where uh, when Chasfre Lacoma is getting into her XV-22, uh, and... Um, and uh, and the HUD kind of tracks her her pupil uh, movements. Uh, then you've got excuse me. Uh, did I say XV twenty two? I meant the larger uh, XV chassis, uh, which is the XV. Oh my gosh, I've forgotten it. Not the fifteen. The next one up. It'll come to me in just a moment. Um, but uh, but then the final uh, the final element. Uh, within uh, within the uh, within within the XV8, and it's not clear if this is uh, if this is throughout all of the battlesuit systems. The assumption is that it is, um, but there is a small neuro uh, needle that then uh, gets injected uh, from the uh, at the base of the skull. So the Tau have these things called tzitzel. Uh, scales, which is a uh, very delicate, uh, sensitive scales that are um, uh, that are that run along the fr from basically the 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 nape of the neck and then all the way down uh, just above the buttocks. Um, and these sensitive scales are described sometimes as being where uh, can 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 be like where sweat accumulates. Um, but various sources, you know, kind of go back and forth on that. Oh, sorry, the XV twenty five, duh. Sorry, um, I got I got uh, uh, sidetracked. So so this needle uh, is uh, injected um, 
uh, at the base, uh, above, above the scales and at the base of the skull. And it creates a, a, a kind of a seamless link uh, between pilot and machine. Now, uh, I, would, I would say that this technology is best, uh, is best kind of, the, the analogy for the imperial side of things would be the, the black carapace that space marines have. Um, neurological links are not uncommon with, uh, within uh, Adeptus Mechanicus technology. Uh, but, but very few things can achieve the same, uh, the same level of integration that, uh, that the space, the, that the Astartes are able to have with their black carapace. Um, and the black carapace being permanent ports, uh, all, uh, in several places, mostly on their chest, uh, that, that, that cause a direct nervous system link between them and their power armor, um, that allows things like, uh, even a Terminator, uh, which has, you know, is huge and clunky. Uh, their, uh, the dexterity that's described with their operation of a power fist is that they can turn, delicately turn the page of a book with a power fist. So that, it, the, the Tau technology is on scale with that. It might not be completely at the scale uh, because a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, uh, specifically Space Marine technology, or at least the technology that Space Marines utilize, is you know is is emperor designed and the emperor is you know nothing nothing gets close to anything the emperor focused on um but but it is in that let's call it, it it's it's near that tier if if uh if the black carapace is tier 10 then uh the neural link is 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 tier 9 you know um right right around there with the you know with like the titanicus uh interface and why that's important is ends up being the largest cultural element of the XV8 in relation to the Firecast. Um, and, and why? It's because when the Fire Warrior experiences this final link, they begin to... Well, first of all, they can feel what their suit feels. Um, they, can, they, they operate uh, as one. But with the added kind of problem of something called battlesuit neurosis, um, and Shadow Sun talks about this a little bit in some of her quotes, um, the power that an XV-8 gives its pilot is intoxicating. And the Tau, you know, remember that the Tau are, are actually a species of extremes. If we think about uh, back during the age of the Manta, um, you know, in that, in that pre-ethereal age, uh, four different species took four, basically took four different pathways of of both culture and evolution. You know, the air cast had wings, for example. Um, the earth cast, uh, you know, became what they are, uh, completely dedicated to mining and and building cities and things like that. Whereas, you know, the water cast is 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 almost by design like just more focused on communication to the point where. You know, they not only do they have the ability to uh, actually train their faces to have more more expression because the tower regarded as having very little expression, but they'll go they'll, they'll like surgically change themselves and and change their 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 uh, vocal cords to be able to speak other languages. So 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 the Tao are are take their their duty to their their society to a level that human beings just just really don't. 
You know, if you look at the Space Marines, uh, they're, they're effectively kidnapped children, which are then traumatized and brutalized into being weapons, almost unthinking weapons of the Imperium. You know, they, they very rarely question their place. And typically, those Space Marines that fall to chaos are really just taking their role to just higher and higher extremes, and they don't notice, you know, they don't notice that, that, they're, that they're actually falling, you know, to the various, uh, the various powers that are out there that are, that are trying to seduce them. But the Tau don't have that. The Tau don't have a, have a relationship with chaos to worry about, and so they have that level of dedication and extreme psychological conditioning to, to dedicate themselves to a task. And it's actually the concept of the greater good and the fifth subspecies, the ethereals, uh, that actually rein them back in. And that's that's something that I think is 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 such an interesting narrative that I, I hope we get more examples of, because the ethereals are really keeping everything balanced and keeping everybody kind of in their lane. Uh, but more importantly, they're keeping them uh, from going too extreme. You know, uh, a great example of this is you know the Tau uh, regularly offer parlay. They, they really don't want to completely annihilate an enemy. Um, they don't, you know, maybe the fire cast does, but, but, but generally speaking, the Tao as a society do not want to commit these war crimes or commit these, these atrocities and things in the name of, even, even in the name of the greater good. Um, and you see examples of that here and there, especially in the third sphere, where the Tao are horrified at the extremes that they've had to go to in order to invade a ghrelin. And it actually causes a fracturing in which they're questioning, like, are we doing the right thing by causing this level of conflict? It's really, it's, 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 it's solid, right? It's a really great uh, racial, social, and cultural uh, cornerstone that, that I never want the Tao to get rid of, uh, despite, you know, some author's decisions to go in other directions. But anyway... Um, so, so we have, we have this, we have this extreme, this preference for extremes and, and on Teros, when the ethereal is assassinated, uh, Shaso Ramir, uh, like basically takes a, a day or two to reflect and to grieve and the fire cast just does nothing. And the Imperium is kind of like unsure as to what to do next and then when the the fire cast emerges from their positions, they do not offer quarter. And they advance in, in a kind of battle rage, not the battle rage of like what you're used to with like coronate worshippers or space marines or or whatever, but this like inexorable march forward. And they do not offer quarter and they do not offer uh, surrender. They annihilate everything in their path. And the Imperium is forced to just completely withdraw from the Taros Theater. So, and you know, we get other descriptions. Uh, Brightsword is also very famous in the in the 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 Kaloth Gorge massacre, uh, where he just annihilates the human population and kills uh, every single Imperial unit uh, that's thrown at him, which is a combination of the Vestroyan Imperial Guard, uh, some other guard units, and the Imperial Fists. Uh, he also utilizes the crude and lets that, like, basically just unleashes the crude, uh, who then, you know, basically, you know, cannibalize uh, this population. Um, this event is so traumatic 
that one, the uh, Shasar Tol, the fire cast command, censors uh, Brightsword uh, and actually uh, brings him back to Tau, where he is formally like, you know, he's put on trial and reprimanded and assumed that, you know, the Makla uh, ritual is performed on him, uh, uh, chastising him. Um, but that that event is so traumatic that even uh, there's an Imperial Fist uh, and you can you can briefly read about him in the Sons of Dorne. I believe it's the same Imperial Fist that shows up in the first Tau Codex, but I'm not I'm not sure. But he is actually tra- still traumatized from the events of Nimbosa and the Koloth Gorge massacre. And I think that that is you know people are always wanting to uh, either chastise the Tau for being anything like the Imperium or 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 saying that they're identical to the Imperium. And the fact is is that they're not. They do commit these kinds of crimes. It's just they are horrified by them. And they try to do the morally correct thing, which is restrain those emotions and those decisions. Uh, and, and I think that that is, a, that is an important cultural difference. Now, so, so this is all just giving examples of the extremities, uh, specifically of the fire cast. Uh, although if you want to get into the water cast, you could read the Fehavari series. Uh, uh, specifically the book Firecast, uh, that, that get into what happens when the water cast is completely unrestrained. Um, and it's really, you know, it's really good. So you need the ethereal cast in order to keep the regulation uh, of these extremes in check. So how does that relate to the XV-8? The XV-8 is the exemplification of, of, that, of that desire of, of, of extremes, right? Um, it, it allows the fire warrior to fly, to be able to withstand enormous damage and to inflict enormous damage. Um, and battlesuit neuroses, uh, can be so, uh, can, can be so damaging psychologically that even after a pilot has removed the needle from the back of their head, they might still think that they can fly. And there are great descriptions in the Fire Warrior novel by Spurrier uh, that, uh, that describes uh, Chassel Lucian uh, uh, d- basically saying that he has seen Fire Warrior veterans that have retired who will leap off of the roofs of retirement centers because they still think that they're a battlesuit, you know? And, and uh, Shadow Sun herself cautions that the, the the exhilaration and the intoxication of being inside of one of these suits can be uh, can can let you go too far and I really do think that uh, farsight um, especially since he's lived for so long I mean he's he's now I think plus 350 years uh, he I believe that he is the he's the perfect example of someone who there is no difference between his suit and his body you know they the two are one you know um and and so and so what ends up happening is is that part of the trials uh of 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 advancing through the ranks uh of the of the fire cast is incorporating this this idea that you have to be of the right caliber let's call it the, the right social aspect, the right the right uh, the right uh, psychological disposition to be someone who can handle being in an XV8. And it's even been stated that the firecast could 
make an XV8 suit for every single fire warrior alive, but they choose not to because th- because they would risk basically making an army of <laughs> psychopaths. Uh, uh, and and I I find it interesting because that's very similar to the uh, the curbing de- decision by Rogel Dor- uh, excuse me by Gilliman uh, to. Uh, limit the Space Marine chapters to being a thousand Space Marines rather than the hundreds of thousands that existed during the heresy. Um, it's the same reason. Like we could make more, but by doing so, we the 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 percentage chance that something goes wrong grows with every with every new pilot, or in this case uh, of Gilliman, every new Space Marine. So it's it's restraint. It's it's uh, it's holding back. And and you can see that after being a Shasui, that they don't necessarily turn into they don't immediately turn into pilots. Uh, with even some people staying, you know, there are there are firecast veterans that have been Shasla and they're you know in their thirties or they're closer to retirement in their forties. Um, but but that that they're they're there it is potential. Uh, potentially uh, indicative of the rest of the culture that if you do not have the right psychological conditioning to, or or, or let's call it the psychological uh, template to be a crisis suit pilot, you just stop progressing. The hypothesis of that uh, is is linked to a lot of lore uh, kind of discerned by enthusiasts like myself, which is surely there must be uh, an entire branch of of the fire cast that just has nothing to do with combat at all. Uh, the logistics alone of running, you know, an army, uh, I believe uh, smarter people have, have told me that like for every soldier in the field, you need five uh, that is dealing with supply, logistics, communication, maintenance things like that so so the one fire warrior that you see there he's probably being backed up or excuse me they're probably being backed up by several fire warriors that are in a bunker somewhere and i believe that um whether or not they're all shasla or shaswi uh or or i guess uh you know a chasnel the the fire blades uh is up for debate but i like to think that there could be uh, Chassel or even Chasso that are not that are not frontline uh, frontline warriors, um, but who knows? Um, because you know the fire cast is very much based on the the warrior caste system of of the Japanese, obviously, and the warrior caste system uh, that existed in uh, in India, and uh, and and some of the some of the creators like Graham McNeil, for example, have talked a little bit about the fact that. Uh, that since those are their 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 sources of inspiration, yeah, you just don't you 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 will never be a chasso if you cannot be someone that gets into a crisis suit and flies, you know. And there's there there is indication that pilots can pilot multiple uh, vehicles. I mean, obviously, Shadow Sun at Agrelin not uh, uh, got out of her XV twenty two and got into a Ghost Keel. Uh, Farsight, because he was deemed too aggressive uh, for his own good, was made into a broadside pilot. Um, you know, uh, the, the, it, it is possible that, that that pilots can interchange, but we just don't know very much about that. Uh, obviously, we've never had an option for 
like an XV15 or an XV25 to be, to, we, we've never seen anything past Chasse for them. So a little bit unclear, a little bit of a gray area, but I think that logistically, it makes sense that there would be a lot of Chasse uh, and maybe even Chasse that operate uh, without without a suit of some kind. So, so that's the second sphere. And in the second sphere, the fire cast comes into its own. I've talked about the, the spheres before. You know, the third sphere is very much, uh, even though Shadow Sun is in control of it, uh, by description, by the lore, the it is very much the water cast's victory. You know, the water cast is really in the driver's seat for the third sphere. Two thirds of the gains that were made, uh, of which uh, 33% of the Commonwealth expanded by, two thirds of those conflicts were done without any kind of warfare described, um, with 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 extreme minimal losses. Uh, the the fourth sphere, we you know obviously it was just a complete failure, uh, and the fifth sphere, we're we're back into the driver's seat that it is the fire cast that it's in that's in control, right? Um, I would say that the first sphere was the air cast's time because that's what that's that's the creation of the Corvatra. But the second sphere is the golden age for the fire cast. And it's during this time that they learn who they are. Uh, with with no better example being the eventual culmination of all of these ideas and all of this culture and execution with uh, the ascendancy of Commander Puretide, who is who invents, uh, the combined arms approach to conflict. Instead of the XV-8 suits just leading everywhere, very much like the cavalry, right? He incorporates uh, the foot soldiers of the of the Commonwealth uh, working in conjunction with the crisis suits. And that's where the crisis suits become even more important because you have uh, Devilfish, for example, uh, moving uh, pathfinders and line warriors around a battlefield and basically setting up various different types of tactical uh, responses to an enemy and then the crisis suits coming in. The the Manta strike is something that is largely uh, attributed to Pure Tide's tactical creation or his his brilliance right he he's the one that 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 basically ties it all together and you see a little bit of that brilliance continued forward with uh with with uh with farsight actually um not in the confines of the of, of the battle of arkanasha which as i've stated before arkanasha is a uh is a career low point for farsight he never psychologically recovers from his defeat uh, there, uh, or at least the con the way that the conflict uh, developed on Arkunasha, nor uh, the uh, elements on Dalith, where Farsight almost adopts a swarm tactic to uh, to compete with the Imperials. Uh, another, you know, high buy. I've talked about this before. Farsight is not a good overall commander if you just look at the amount of people who have died under his command. Uh, the I mean, he just throws lives away. Um, but that's because he has this concept of like a more extreme version of Montka, the way of the short blade, in which he utilizes the crisis suits in almost like an archaic fashion in which they just lead, you know, from the front every time they land in the most intense positions where they're often surrounded. So if they don't, if, 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 if Farsight's tactics don't knock out an opponent immediately, they're going to just be swamped, you know? 
but but some of that brilliance creeps back in with his uh, reclamation uh, wars. Now, I've stated before that the reclamation is also not a, a not a very um, not a good example of a good commander. Uh, Farsight is mostly combating against planetary defense forces, in in which it's described he loses almost fifty percent of his operational military, and then goes you know has the events on Arthas Malak, loses all his all of his ethereals, and then goes and picks a fight with the orcs. It's just it's it's a series of bad decisions after bad decisions. But on Kronos specifically, he is described as as uh, utilizing Vespid and Crude in conjunction with his XV8 uh, formations, which is something that I don't think that anybody had done before. That um, the Vespid obviously have always been able to serve directly with the XV8s. It's it's one of the reasons why the Firecast thinks of the Vespid as the as the most sublime example of uh, of an auxiliary race, uh, and and the the Vespid are full member species. You know, I've, I, again, I've talked about this before. The member species status allows an alien species to colonize other planets, and the Vespid are allowed to do that. Uh, so are the Crute, uh, and and now most recently the Guevessa, uh, human beings. Um, but as we get into this third sphere. Uh, that XV8 system changes again, where where it is the premier example of the Firecast warrior, right? It is it is all the things that the Firecast wants to be, uh, or excuse me, I should say the Fire Warrior wants to be, uh, incorporated with a very strict psychological programming uh, uh, or conditioning that allows for them to restrain themselves and to work in conjunction with the rest of the 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 cadre right um when that happens uh it is it, it is basically allowed to evolve now we go through the age of the confeder uh, the the wars of the confederacy uh in which this is that this is that 200 250 year uh span of time between the second sphere and the third sphere uh and during this time period, um, it is like the Dark Ages for the Tau. Um, the orcs come back as a result of Farsight's meddling. Uh, you have uh, you have a uh, let's call it well. You have the introduction of the Tyranids with High Fleet Gorgon. Um, you have the lo- almost the complete loss of of several alien species because of that. Um, you have the you have you have the first contact with the Dark Eldar. Uh, and then the subsequent uh, miscommunication that results in the Eldar no longer uh, wanting to really cooperate with the Tau. There are periods of cooperation, obviously, but uh, the Tau make a lot of mistakes, uh, pr- primarily because of of, of the, the manipulation of the Dark Eldar. Um, and, uh, and of course, you have the, the, the rise in Imperial activity on the border, uh, which results in more conflict. But... All of this, uh, th- this time period, is really just uh, testing uh, Tau society. Um, there's not a lot of evolution that's described. There's not a lot. There's no. There's not a lot of leaps in logic, except for the uh, aircast who develop a new fleet. Uh, so instead of it being just a merchant fleet, it becomes a a honest war fleet. Uh, but but as Shadow Sun is awoken and 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 completes. 
uh, the the Wars of Confederation and kind of comes into her own as the premier commander of of the Commonwealth uh, and then starts to formulate the plan for the Third Sphere expansion, you see a couple new evolutions of the XV-8. Now, to begin with, it now kind of plays second fiddle to new inventions such as the Riptide. You know, the Riptide is the is the uh, Giga uh, XV-8. It is the it, it, it takes all of the things that an XV-8 can do and ramps it up even more, including the incorporation, well, I should say the replacement of the plasmic engine over the Nova. And the Nova is, is uh, first of all, the energy is harvested from dark matter. Um, it's a... Uh, it, it and and it's uh, it's something that you know can harm the pilot itself, but it's by the pilot's choice. Um, the pilot is able to uh, basically like dial everything up to an eleven or an aspect of the suit to eleven, and that that self-sacrificing aspect of a fire warrior, which again is curtailed by the ethereals, is allowed to just kind of uh, unrestrain itself, to free itself of those kinds of uh, cultural uh hemming you know uh so the so the riptide kind of takes on uh an even an even more extreme example of the xv8 the ghost keel uh which is an evolution of kind of the stealth technologies uh although it's it's you know it's very hush hush and so it doesn't have that much of an impact it seems culturally uh but um but again has another extreme factor inside of it in that the artificial intelligence governing governing a ghost keel is so advanced that the pilot kind of befriends and can bond even with it um and and the pilot's result resulting in the pilots no longer wanting to be kind of interacting with real life people um again all of these new suits kind of take on that that fire warrior extremism or or, or obsession or uh, a hyper focus, while the XV8 kind of relatively stays the same. Sure, there are a couple different variants that happen. Some some new technologies are tested out and incorporated, um, but generally speaking, uh, the, it stays the same. Uh, there are uh, the Cold Star, you know, commander variants, but they were they don't they don't really they're they're not that much of a departure from the the original XV8 frame. What does happen though? is and this is the the first time that we we have it written down is that during the third sphere other species are allowed to pilot the xv8 now the xv8 was always the mantle of heroes it always was this embodiment the, the the cultural embodiment of service and what it means to be a fire warrior and we even have examples uh in the book kill team uh, where somebody, you know, a, a human tries to get into an XV-8, and uh, the defense, you know, it's unclear if this is this would happen to anybody, but the defense system inside of the XV-8 cooks the person alive. They're, it electrocutes them. Um, they uh, there there are also mentions of uh, of of basically the AI inside of a of an XV-8 being able to operate independently. Um, uh, this was specifically actually in response to fighting against the Hrud, uh, where the pilots would die um, and the AI would take over. It's called the Avatar Program. And the, so the AI is intelligent enough to operate as, uh, as a pilot, but the Firecast deliberately does not let that happen because, again, it's the Firecast that does the fighting. So they remain the pilots, even though they have the option of it 
of something else taking over. That noticeably changes in the third sphere when we have Guevesa o Vadem, who is a human inquisitor who pilots his own XB8. And it had never been it had never been described before. He also leads a bodyguard unit uh, that is uh, presumably Tau. So this human is invited to be a pilot that perhaps he exemplified. This is why, um, for those of you who have read the, the short story, or excuse me, the novella uh, Broken Sword, um, that's why I don't think that Vadem is being uh, mind con- there, there's There's a brief like moment where the human thinks like that Vadem is being perhaps mind controlled by a uh, by one of the Nagi. Uh, the Nagi are mind control worms that uh, actually closely advise the ethereal cl- ethereal cast. Um, but I think because Vadem is piloting an XV8 suit, he has either done something or something has happened where Guevessa are achieving a certain level of communality with the fire cast and have the kind of virtues and that psychological conditioning to not let themselves fall to battlesuit neuroses um, where they go insane uh, or they or they stop being able to function normally. And as we get into further uh, spheres of expansion, I think that that is only going to grow in possibility. I think that I think that the next major evolution of the Tao war culture is going to be bringing in uh, bringing in more and more alien species into the process of what it means to be a fire warrior. And my number one example of it, and this will actually be uh, next episode uh, as I review Longshot, uh, the new uh, the new story uh, that uh, that that involves Imperial Guard versus Tau. Um, I have started noticing that. Authors at Black Library, I'm assuming it's on purpose. It could be a happy accident or a happy coincident, co- uh, coincidence. But Tau, as well as Imperial Guard, refer to those humans that have turned over and and have joined the greater good. Refer to them as Tau themselves. They say those are Tau, and they're pointing right at a squad of clearly human. Guevessa warriors. So I think what could be happening is that even the 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 not not just the like the racial component is basically irrelevant, and that something is happening in which to be a fire warrior you have to adhere to the codes of fire, and that the concept of being a Tao is actually you know racially it's no longer important. It's psychologically or uh, or culturally, you have adopted what it means to be a Tau. Uh, and in the case of, of Battlesuit Pilots, uh, being a fire warrior. And if you look even in the Farsight enclaves, you can see that this is also kind of being adopted in which Earthcast personnel are now being allowed to pilot, well, in, in one case at least, Riptide Battlesuits. So it's... It's an ever-shifting, potentially evolving cultural phenomenon in which the Tao don't think of themselves as a species, but think of themselves as a, as a dispos- almost a psychological and cultural disposition. And I think that's absolutely, like, massively cooler 
than uh, than the notions of you know having race or gender kind of uh, define everything. That that's a very common trait in the Imperium. You know, there can only be male space brains, for example. There can only be female sisters of silence, uh, male custodians. Uh, things like that, um, and you notice it even in Cadia, uh, the the new Cadian lore, in which Cadians themselves are have animosity to the new uh, humans that are being incorporated into their ranks. There is no more Cadia. Uh, those those planets that were that close to the Eye of Terror turned your eyes purple, and they they look for that in Imperial Guardsmen. If your eyes are not purple, you're one of, you know, the other. You're an outsider. And I think that that is awesome when it comes to, like, the narrative possibilities. But I also think it's innately human in order, you know, humans do that. We like we like these patterns. We associate safety and threats with the way that someone looks or sounds or whatever, right? Like, the unfamiliar is always going to be the enemy, and the familiar is always going to be the ally, just instinctually. It would be interesting if the Tao take it to a new level, especially in our lore, in which it's not how you look or it's not what you are, it's what you decide to be. And these auxiliaries uh, and these member species, if they decide that they are going to adopt the codes of fire, well, then you are a fire warrior. Uh, And I'm really hoping that we get more lore about the Vespid because, again, if you read that early Vespid lore, the, the... the fire warriors hold the vespid above the crew, above everybody else, and if and and once you once you get into the nitty gritty of vespid lore, you find out that everyone that serves with them thinks that they're just incredible, that they are just amazing. That there's no warrior that is more self sacrificing than a vespid. Um, you can read about that in the Libra Xenologist book, a, a crew, uh, uh, the crew from the Blackstone series, just you know, is is actually emotional when he's remembering uh, his time serving with a Vespid. And it's just, it's interesting that because, because if the Vespid exemplify the codes of fire even more so than a fire warrior, it's just, it, it, it creates this new dichotomy in which, you know, what does a fire warrior respect, you know? And, do, and now that respect is incorporating their technology, which is these XV-8 suits. So we've reached, we, we've reached a, a little bit over an hour. Um, uh, I would like to just say that, you know, the XV-8 suit, uh, while it has been overshadowed uh, by, by these other suits, um, uh, uh, remains my favorite uh, uh, in terms of just the lore associated with the, the cultural reasons why the Firecast, you know, the Firecast does the fighting, they are the pilots, you know. Despite all of these technologies that get incorporated into it, such as AI and things like that, it doesn't matter. We're the Firecast, we do it. And that's why it's called the Mantle of Heroes. Alone, amongst all the other uh, suits, only the XV-8 is regarded as the Mantle of Heroes. It's the it's the go-to suit of the commander class, you know, or the commander rank. And now that it's starting to expand into species that the Firecast clearly respects and adopts, uh, I think it's I think it's the best indication of of the cultural uh, evolution that's happening currently in the fifth sphere. Something that I try to adhere to is keeping these episodes to an hour, um, and uh, and so uh, I'm going to conclude this for now. 
um, but I would, uh, I, I am going to follow up. I realize I, I went down a rabbit hole, and uh, and perhaps this uh, this means I should probably be uh, going a little bit more on script. But there will be a bonus episode, um, which you'll be able to listen to, that will cover the more traditional crisis suit configurations. Now, configurations have kind of gone out of style. Uh, because there's, I mean, really, you just take cyclic ion blasters, and, and I respect that, but back in the day, you know, we had the fire knife configurations, uh, missile pods and plasma rifles, and and it just, <clears throat> it was just a more, uh, a, more di- uh, a rich diversity uh, with how to kit out uh, a XV-8, and I'd like to explore that in the additional episode, uh, which will be coming out um, later on. Uh, this week. So uh, I, I hope you've enjoyed uh, <laughs> uh, the the typical Calm Sword soapbox. I hope that uh, you have enjoyed uh, whatever it is that you're doing, be you uh, painting or uh, modeling, uh, driving, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, I'm happy to be there with you. Uh, I hope you have an excellent time, morning, noon, or night, and we'll see you next time. Uh, please be sure to support Um, And please uh, join us on the Discord. Be well.